Welcome to Season 2 of Game Design Unboxed on the No Direction Network. Danielle talks to tabletop game designers about the games they've made. Together, they unbox how the game went from inspiration to publication. Thank you for joining me, Danielle, for Game Design Unboxed Inspiration to Publication, Episode 29, Savage Sisters. Today, we are joined by Graham Gens, a writer of Ninth Level's game RPG, Savage Sisters. Hey, how's it going? Great. Awesome. So just to kick off the episode, uh, everyone wants to know, what got you into the gaming industry? Well, a lot of things. Um, I have been playing games for a very long time. And what's exciting about board games and role-playing games is that the more you put into them, they give you the equal amount back. And so learning more and more, eventually you start going to cons and you're meeting people and you realize that designers aren't just names on pages. And going after to speak to some of these designers, you ask, okay, well, how did you get started? Where do you go? And you get recommended to go to game design cons like Metatopia in in Morristown, New Jersey. And doing that, you meet more people. And it's all just this series of momentum. You you get in the right rooms and you're shaking hands. And then all of a sudden you want to make games and then you're there. And so that's that's how I've ended up where I am. That's so awesome. I love going to the Metatopias, the Unpubs, the Protospiels, because it, it is definitely a different vibe. It is. The the creative energy is there. Um playtesting in them could be a little dangerous because you you realize that everyone is on the same page if you take the same game to a completely different environment particularly when you're not there to instruct or to talk about your intention, then you really start to learn where some hiccups in your design or your document or your instructions are. At Metatopia or Unpub, you say a few quick words and everybody in the room is on board and they can give you a lot of that input. Um, so always keep it in mind who's there in what room and who you're designing for is such a big thing. That's so true. And so for this episode, we're going to be talking about the RPG Savage Sisters. For anyone who doesn't know about this, would you mind explaining what the RPG is about? Absolutely. So Savage Sisters is an RPG where you're around a fire. You're around an imagined fire telling stories of your collective ancestors who are a group of warrior women. Um, it is a role-playing game uh, through the lens of the oral tradition. I already think that role-playing games very much dictate from this this tradition of storytelling um the yes ands and the what do you do's the nomenclature that gets passed around for how these stories get told and to take it to its i think logical conclusion okay as humans why do we like stories well it's about character why do we watch television why do we watch movies why do we have the same TV program where it's terrible season after season, but we're still there? It's because we love characters. Our human brains are obsessed with character. And so to make an RPG that keys in specifically to that storytelling tradition is very important. But then who are these characters that we have? And it's it's a sword and sorcery adventure. It's exciting. Um, it's action. Uh, but there's so many that are male-focused um, across the board, um, the industry is already there. These stories yeah. are being told. So it's exciting to have a game specifically and say, well, this game is specifically about a group of these Amazonian warrior women, since that is that much more uncommon. And it is a story that's it's immediately exciting to be able to tell. I completely agree. I love, I mean, I personally have always gravitated towards female characters. And now that we have a lot more female nerds out there, or at least openly talking about being nerdy. 
it's nice to see that we have more stuff we can do. Yes, big time. I mean, the way you get more diverse games is by having more diverse designers. You need female designers. You need non-binary designers. You need designers of color. You need every kind of person because their lived experiences are what how they're going to make art with, how they're going to make their games. And so that's why for decades we've had our high fantasy and sci-fi and only in this very surface level, oh, we're going to kill orcs or we're going to be in space. We're going to blow things up. And these are the only two themes that you're working with, the stories that are being told in the board gaming space and video games and, and literally everything. And so the more diversity you have, the, the healthier the environment is going to be and the more kinds of games you get to have. So then what inspired you to design this specific game and choose like Amazonian women? Well, I've already touched on the idea that there, if you're going to tell a sword and sorcery story, um, the it's male is a default by your characters. You have your Conans, you have everything else. Um, but these stories like Xena, they exist and they're automatically, they're in the, the minority of the minority. So if you're going to talk a, a, a tale about legacy of our grandmothers and our grandmother's grandmothers telling stories, then why not make it about women? Why not make it about women telling women's stories? The idea is that your group is isolated in a sword and sorcery world. Your characters are going to be in a harsh environment taken directly from things that, that isolate them. You're othered. You're othered automatically. And beyond just the setting, that's something every human can identify with, the idea of being othered at one time or another, feeling like they don't belong. And so if you're telling a story of this group, if you're, if you're in a role-playing setting, everybody is, who's just played D&D or something knows that they have a character and that you know the character on my left is different from the character on my right, and I feel emotionally invested in my character. But we're coming together and telling the story to make it a family and to make it about this, this legacy of women telling women's stories means that it's a powerful thing to have your stories about. It's evocative immediately, but then it's an, an important thing to be told because it, it shouldn't be unusual, but it is. And so how do you start to tell like this story? How do you start to write an RPG? Well, the at the broad strokes, uh, Savage Sisters is in the polymorph system, which is designed by Chris O'Neill from Ninth Level Games. The gimmick of ninth of of the ninth level games um palette of rpgs and polymorph like other rpgs oftentimes you're rolling a single die and you're doing a lot of arithmetic and there's a target number that the facilitator knows a higher number good you know if you're trying to roll a, a die and you're adding a number to get a 10 it's a low task a 15 maybe somewhat more difficult a 20 or higher it's all just pretty arbitrary math depends on your character it depends on what the dm decides but it's all very illusionary and the reason that it's been done that way is only because it's always been done that way since the 70s and people haven't really stepped in to say well is there a way to do it cleaner better simpler so the idea being that the the polyhedral dice that pretty much everyone has your d4 your d6 your d8 your d10 everyone has these dice and so rather than having a mechanic where higher number good, the four basic skills will break down on a range. And this is going to get a little technical, but I think it's pretty simple. So it's pretty easy to kind of grok. You have four skills. One only succeeds on a two, three. There's one that's a four, five, six. There's one that's a four, five, six, seven. But your character is a single die and you're never adding or subtracting anything. So you might be a D4. I might be a D6. Our friend over here, um, Gargamel. Hi, Gargamel. How's it going? Gargamel is a D8. And so when you target your skill, 
the combat is a higher number. The the looking, running, hiding is a smaller one. And so, oh, I want to be good at the skill. I'm going to choose the D6. And you only ever roll that die. You have the D4. That means you're going to be magical. It means you're going to have your senses involved. Gargamel wants to be good at fighting, so he's going to choose a D8 because that's better at those skills. And so the idea that you only have this die means that I'm clutching it in my hand. It feels like a totem. It's powerful. And it, it matters. Um, you have all these dice in other games. They don't matter. But now we have found a way to utilize these dice that don't get used. And that feels important because all RPGs are at some level ritual. And so trying to key that in as simply as possible is what all the other polymorph games are about. Trying to tell the best story possible without getting weighed down with 500-page rule books because we just want to tell stories together. And the polymorph system, why was it named that? Do you know? There was a couple different names that Chris kicked around, but like, but polymorph being multi-sides for dice, um, for the shapes, since the nerdy shapes that we're all kind of familiar with, with like the D20 and the D12 and whatever, um, it derives from the fact that there are three-dimensional shapes. And it's just one of those nerdy words that, that people like. There were a couple different ones, but that was the one that I think Chris worked with because it's it's a little bit iconic and recognizable. So it just describes the idea that the dice are important. I want them to be important. Everybody has 12-sided dice, but they don't get used for anything. You hard, If you play D&D, you're only ever going to roll a, a D20 most of the time. And the math is, is never really very satisfying. So trying to... Make it both simple, but also have something be greater than some of its parts. That's kind of the the idea of polymorph. No, that's really cool. And so when you are working on like Savage Sisters, how does playtesting and development work? The initial idea is so all the polymorph system games share the, the, the arithmetic. That's all the same. The basic idea is that there's only four skills and they're on this simple range of numbers. Um, and your and that your character will be defined by a single die. But there is a few mechanics that will get added for one game or another to kind of assist that. In the excellence, the RPG, uh, you play cartoon princesses in a an, an awesome world, and so you're the princess of one thing or another. And so the character decisions that you make are well. What am I the princess of? I'm the princess of mollusks. I'm the princess of breakfast food cereals. It's a Saturday morning cartoon. It's supposed to be kind of fun and silly. Um, but there's no harm system. There's no HP. There's no nothing. You either succeed or you don't. And that sort of dictates the talking stick who gets to explain what happens in that moment. In Savage Sisters, there is a harm system, but it's you because you fail, um, a single number gets ticked up and then you roll your die and if you roll under it, your character is dead. Um, but that's okay because it's a rotating DM uh, game. So each story is being told by the GM or grandmother of a tale of this this past, this this group of women, which you've called a sodol. Uh, it's a made-up word from the word sodolatry because there's all these other similar words that we felt had too much uh, cultural baggage, uh, like tribe. And we, you know, we wanted to completely avoid all of these ideas and, again, create our own stories. So because you're rotating the GM, it means that each story is only about 20 minutes long. And so the, the idea that your character can die is okay because the next tale that gets told within a session might be non-linearly at a different point in somebody's life. So there's really only as many systems as that we need to have and no more, no less. That's the idea. So with rotating DMs, do you find that that makes it more difficult to get into the story or system? Because I know, like I have, I'm going to tell you right now and to everyone who's listening, RPGs, I haven't done much of it, but normally there's always like one DM. I never had to really do anything except participate, roll the dice I need to roll and kind of like, 
go along with whatever story they were telling. I never had to present the story. Right. Uh, I think that it's systems like this that are exciting to me because I, I think that there is this un, undue adoration for the idea of a facilitator in these games. I hate DM screens. Uh, I think they should be done away with. Um, all polymorph games are player facing, which is to say that um, the GM never rolls any dice. The players are all the ones that roll dice and you focus, they focus on the players telling the story, being part of the action. In Savage Sisters, when you're rotating, each story is being told, each scene, it's only about 10 or 20 minutes long and it's impossible to prep. You could, you could tattoo this on my forehead, prep is death. If a DM or a GM, a grandmother in the case of our, our parlance in, in Savage Sisters, if you're doing all this prep, if you have uh, uh, stat blocks and you have maps and you have all these things and you have in your head the idea what you want the story to tell then you're not actively listening to your players you're not be, being willing to bring them in and instead you're subjecting the story upon them and the story isn't being told by the players what's special about role-playing games is they're the only form of media where audience and participant are the same that line gets obliterated so these kinds of games that we tell prep is death it doesn't matter it's good it's freeing it means that you get to be there on it and you have your turn at this talking stick you're the one making those you know quote unquote big decisions oh this is the die you're gonna roll and you know this is the skill that you want to use and then it's over and the band-aid is ripped off and then you get to be part of the story again the whole experience is ritualized. The whole experience is shared. When you start a tale in, in the book, you start with the phrase, the activation phrase, when you're the, the grandmother, again, we're imagining this fire, gather around the fire, my best and beloved, for this is the tale of, and then you have some big, big purple sword and sorcery-esque, you know, beyond the land of skull and flame or something, right? And I have no idea what that was. It just came out of my mouth. But in the next 10 or 20 minutes, as we tell our tale, like, I'm going to figure it out and it's going to be exciting and everyone's going to hug and high five. I love that so much. It is it is very fun to do that storytelling. Like, I was a fan. I did improv growing up and just like kind of doing the yes and, and just going along with it made for so many good memories. And I love that RPGs pull that in. As far as your game in particular... How long does a campaign typically go? Is it something where it's like a one-off or does it go for like months? What are we talking time-wise? Because the game is brand new, the only ways that I've personally experienced it are in single sessions. Because the the simple mechanics that you create are so emotional. I don't even talk about the lar. When you when you create your your group, your sodal, the very first decision is to make your small god. Um, you have a lar, which is named after like the lares of ancient Rome. Uh, Rome would have like spirits on individual houses. This is scale we're dealing with. The idea being that your group of women worships a single small god, and really nobody else in this sort of you know undefined sword and sorcery world um, knows about them. You think of what the animal they they mostly appear as. So a rabbit or an eel or, you know, a wolf. But you give it an element, usually something very natural, like earth or ice, um, lightning, something like that. And then you name it. And then after that, you have a series. Each player will come up with a series of laws, which uh, we call the Evers and Nevers. Um, and they're sort of these pithy, both pieces of culture, but then imagine something that your grandmother might tell you. Um, each player comes up with two. Uh, one is in the form of always. So always do this thing, uh, like always expect venom. 
something like that. And then never. So like never leave the burrow unprotected, something like that. And so in the book, um, there is instruction to think about, okay, well, where do you live? And then, okay, well, you have an animal you've chosen. Um, maybe it's a mongoose. Okay, well, what do we know about the behavior of the mongoose? You don't have to be a zoologist, but like if you're group was excited about being a mongoose you at least know a couple things about a mongoose you're like oh okay well they fight cobras right why do they fight cobras and so this is a way of sort of backdoor world building you're creating the culture of your sodal of your group of women but then there is a implied larger world that you're learning about from these laws and then as you're telling these stories and pulling them in and these short tales of of blood and betrayal and adventure, you can pull these in. And when this short tale is over, the grandmother can be like, well, you know, that's why you always defend the burrow. And those women, you know, 100 years ago or whatever it was, they learned that on that day. And that didn't exist a second ago. It didn't exist before the game. But now it's been 100% created collaboratively by all of the players. There's not a hierarchy that's been created, even a even a soft hierarchy. All the players have been grandmothers. They've all been these heroes. And so it is 100% a shared experience. So when people walk away from the table, like every time I've played it, I've been like, well, I want to tell more stories with these people about this 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 group of women. It's really exciting. In practice, it hasn't happened, but that's because it's so new. But there's really nothing pre- that prevents you from going back in and telling more tales. And then how did you get set up with um, ninth level games? Like, did they come to you and say, hey, this is an idea we have? Or did you go to them? Like, how did you go about getting this game published? No. So ninth level games, Chris O'Neill, Heather O'Neill, Adriel Wilson are uh, some, some dear friends that I met at Metatopia, my very first Metatopia there, where I brought a a game of mine and was playtesting it and spent all this time running people, what we talked about, about the energy in the room and and, and kind of the excitement. I'd never been around anything like that before. I, for most of my life, had sort of been in a bubble in terms of con culture and nerd culture, because, you know, I'm sure you've had plenty of uncomfortable or or negative experiences in shops or in big places whenever you know you 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 enter in into these spaces and they've never really been terribly welcoming and and I'm a big tall loud white guy and I have found them difficult to navigate a lot of the time and so being at Metatopia I'd never been in a place that was so welcoming and so wonderful and so they just happen to be play testers. They were just people who were nice in a game. Oh, hi, what's your name? Oh, Chris, nice to meet you. And then later I was speaking to him in the lobby and just talking about how much I liked Dread, the role-playing game Dread. It doesn't use dice. It has a jank tower. It's a horror game. And Chris just laughs at me and he takes my copy out of my hand and flips it over and he points the back and he has a pull quote on the back. His name is on the book. And I'm like, where am I? What is this place? This is wild. And so... Before long, I was writing with them and designing. Um, and so Polymorph became this, this larger thing. And we're trying to write as many games and in many systems and styles as we can. That's so cool. And then for someone trying to like get into RPG writing, or maybe they have a few credits and they want to work with you guys, is there a way to do that? Are you kind of like close-knit at this point? I have the perfect answer for that. Um, free RPG day is a relatively new, uh, phenomenon. It mimics the free comic book day, which is a much longer, uh, uh, institution. And, uh, for the past, this will be the third year, ninth level games has produced level one, which is this very high quality 
RPG Anthology, which gets produced and given away for free on RPG Day. Uh, when you go into a comic book sh- st- shop, largely it's things like Watsy or Paizo that have the money, that have the focus to to give out things. And it's like a single adventure. Um, and it'll be on you know glossy paper or whatnot. Level one is unique. I've never ever in my life seen anything like it and you know keep keep this in mind because i'm there but still i think that if you see it for you'll you'll agree with me it's paid for 100 percent by ads from places within the community so again small uh publishers um that want to get their ads out there it's still a very niche uh a community even within board games which is still has more money um still we're talking niche of the niche you know, in, in terms of how much capital is being spent and used. And then designers, um, produce their work, they submit it, they get paid for it. And then they get placed in this anthology in this really high quality print, which are then given out, um, ninth level benefits zero from this. We love the community. We want designers to get paid for their work. We want people to be professional. We want people to have the pride in the moment to have this thing and be like, this is my game. It's in print. It exists. And that's what it is. So uh, if you go to uh, ninthlevelgames.com and find the section for um, level one, it might even be ninthlevelgames.com slash level one, but don't quote me on that. There's a form. Uh, the cutoff date is the end of January. When does this go out, Danielle? <laughs> That's a good point. You know what? Um, I want to say it's sometime in January, potentially. <laughs> well, January 31st is the last day. But, you know, if you email ninthlevelgames at gmail.com, I'm sure something can be worked out. Um, you submit your game. If it gets accepted, uh, it'll be in the... Uh, level one anthology for this coming year the theme is pathology and you'll get paid otherwise next year and i checked it will be coming out basically right next to the deadline so awesome <laughs> hopefully everyone's already written their rpg and get them in yeah so how long did it take you then to go from like the inspiration to the publication of this book and having it out in people's hands to read adriel brought me on at a later date um, this is something that I've been wanting to kind of wrap around and talk to you about is that a lo- basically the back end is what I'm responsible for in terms of the game. The, the kernel of the game, nor the initial writing is not mine. What I was there for was getting the systems in place, editing it, getting it in the way that it was and getting it in its final form. I was there for a play test and was a huge fan I was there and said, this is great. This needs to exist. And as the other polymorph games um, are happening, I was placed to help with the 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 final product and what made it what it was. It's so cool. And then this book compared to the other books, like what do you find uniquely special? I know you've kind of touched on a few things, but or if you want to just say like of the polymorph books is this your favorite do you have another one that's your favorite what do you think well this is the one that i the most of me in it because there's you know huge sections that i've both either written or edited or our whole cloth so so i've been figuring out my own personal philosophy regardless of polymorph or these these wonderful friends that i've made i've been figuring out why do i think role-playing games are important why do i think they're special and when when people come together and make these things, how do I make those things happen? I'm deeply romantic at heart, and these games really tie into that romanticism for me. And this larger, broader, deeply 
personal idea of storytelling, I think he's into that. The idea of like why we watch movies, like why 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 are we so obsessed with movies as as people? Why do we read books? The same thing with role playing, except that you get to be actively involved with this creation, and so there's really nothing like it. So the idea that I I find the process to be fairly sacred when I'm making a game with somebody, when we're telling a story, I I've always taken it in this very very important place. And this game, Savage Sisters, is a ritual about rituals. It's a storytelling game about storytelling. And so it becomes very personal for Adriel, for Chris, for myself to be able to have this game and have it out in the world. Beautifully said. Do you have a favorite, least favorite experience in this design journey? A favorite or least favorite? That's Those are two different questions. Which one do you want me to answer? I don't know. Are you like a glass half full, half empty? Do you want to start with your favorite and then end with your least? It's up to you. <laughs> yeah. So when Adriel brought me on, uh, they said, I, I uh, what I want, a, a part of the book needs to be, how do you tell this tale? And I said, I got this. And so the whole section of getting to articulate that is like over 20 years of me thinking about this and having conversations with people and working in all my experiences playing, you know, advanced Dungeons and Dragons to Call of Cthulhu to, to Vampire the Masquerade to everything else in between. Um, once I discovered indie RPGs like Fiasco and Microscope and, um, and Dread, what is this thing they're doing? Because I always felt like people, there was something under the surface not being explained. You hand somebody a 500-page rule book for some some crunchy game about being in dungeons and killing dragons, but there's really nothing in the text that explains what the heck you're actually doing. And I think that's a huge drawback. So I was able to articulate page to page as as simply as I could, what are we doing? How do you tell the tale? And how do you get there? How do you tell a great story in 20 minutes? How do you have it start great, get exciting and finish in a, in a way that makes sense? And then have it satisfying enough to pass to somebody else and have them do the same thing and have four people do that in the space of a of an evening. It's all there on the page. I don't know about least favorite, but because there were three of us, we Chris and Adriel and myself all had very different ideas. And you know, it gets very niche. It's not the broad ideas. We're all pretty much on board. But it's things like, what should the name of this skill be? You know, that that was like a big discussion. Um, should there be a chart of elements to be used for the different Lars? Should you equate fire only to reindeer? And, you know, should um uh, should a lizard be ice, but never earth, you know, like these are the kinds of ideas you're talking about. And so there was a lot of disagreement <laughs> in terms of what should be there and what isn't. Um, and it ultimately fell somewhere in the middle. Makes sense with collaboration. And this game more recently came out. How is it doing so far? I know you were probably showing it off at a convention. Yeah, we were just at PAX Unplugged um, and PAX went really well because of COVID and everyone there all the numbers were lower, but in terms of sales, it was about the same. You know, we've all been theorizing. And I think that the people who are there at PAX, who are there seriously, you know, it's the holiday season. People have money in their in their hands, like they're there to go. And then whatever the numbers drop is, it's either like they haven't brought their friends or people who are just there to check it out, you know, not not there. So even though the foot traffic was noticeably less from previous years, um, the people were coming up and being excited. I, I don't like being a salesman. I never have. I like people and I like talking to people. But if I like a thing, 
I love telling people why I like a thing. If I say, hey, I've read this comic book, I, you, I really want to tell you about it. You know, hey, I've, I've found this album. This musician is amazing. Let me tell you about it. And I'm lucky enough that like, the people I work with are people I love and I respect and that the work being done is really exciting. So if somebody comes up and I'm engaging with them, you know, all I'm doing is saying, hey, this is something I've learned. I mean, I'm excited about it. And either they say, wow, that speaks to me. For example, another polymorph game is Rebel Scum, which is Chris O'Neill's baby. And it's a explicitly Antifa space opera. You know, it might be similar to if you're having a war in the stars or something, except you have to punch space Nazis in the face. That's what the whole game is. And it wears that on its sleeve. So either you say, yes, this is what I want to do. And you get that game. Or, yeah. you know, maybe you have a, a relationship with punching Nazis, or maybe you don't want to punch Nazis, and then you don't get the game. The idea that these can be for very specific people, the excellence can be for people that want to be princesses that walk up and they see the art and they see it and they say, yes, this is for me. We've had little girls come up, you know, like young, that, that they're in this convention, it's not for them. And then all of a sudden they see the excellence and we say, hey, do you want to be a princess? What do you be a princess of? Oh, fluffy cats. Great. You can be the princess of fluffy cats, you know. Same thing with Savage Sisters. Uh, it speaks to me because I love storytelling and because I love ritual and because it's all, frankly, very sacred to me. That's awesome. And I'm not going to lie, I'd probably be the princess of fluffy cats with three Heck cats yeah. around. <laughs> That's so cute. Ugh. And so, I mean, you clearly, you love RPGs. You like collabing on it, writing them. If you could offer one piece of advice to designers about just like designing RPGs, what would it be? If you if you love RPGs so much that you say, I, I imagine you've been homebrewing for a while. This is a pretty easy step when somebody picks up a book, um, some, you know, weighty tome and something, something in the setting doesn't speak to you or you don't like the way it's written. Well, guess what? A lot of other people think that too. And so it's a pretty common step for people to make their own settings, you know, make their own worlds. Like if you want to play RPGs, like you definitely like writing, you definitely like making up worlds, you know, oh, what if it looked like this? Oh, what if it was like this? Um, what if we did away with fantasy racism or it was more interesting to talk about? Like, these are all things. And if you want to move beyond that, if you say, okay, well, these games aren't what I want. I want to make my own game. I want to make my own system. For me, a trick that I've done and a question I've asked myself is, well, what is a game I've always wished existed but didn't? And then think about it and then make the steps connecting how you get there. And that's how I've made a number of my games where I realized, oh, there's something that I've always been reaching for or wish something was like, but nothing existed out there. And then find that inspiration and then let that drive you. There's something that you, only you, whoever you are, the general you, loves more than anybody else. So figure what that is, and you can make that game. That is amazing. And then... I'm going to ask a question that one of my friends, he's always interested in how do you break an RPG because he thinks that he would be the perfect person to do that. Is that like a job? Is that something someone can volunteer to do for you guys? Yes and no. Um, I, I think that there's, uh, there's two ways for me to answer that. One, when you're dealing with crunch, very complicated rules, the breaking of it comes down to math. So in previous forms of polymorph, it was the D4, the D6, the 8, the, the 10, and the D12. 
And following the same very simple pattern of math, um, the D12 just wasn't working. Um, it didn't make sense. It didn't. The the way that it currently is structured is the different kinds of dice can cover the weaknesses and strength of others, which is what you want. That's the whole thing of having these different people who have strengths and weaknesses that then balance each other. So you come together in a group with very complicated math. You want somebody to come in and be the person with the Excel sheet and run the numbers and have all th- those things happen. So that's part of the breaking and that is valuable at a certain place. However, most of the time we we run things, the the more we're the more mechanics that you add, we understand that that very quickly they're going to collapse into their own weight and we're not really interested in that. The other half that I've heard people of breaking games is, oh, well, here's a system. I listen to you. How do I combine these things in such a way that I be create a character so powerful that it overwhelms the game? That's the other way that yeah. a game can quote unquote break. Sure. I'm tired of that because we're all adults at this point. And playing these kinds of games, you can have a level zero, you can have a, a session zero where you talk and talk about like, well, what are your expectations for the game? What do you want to have? Um, you can have these conversations. A, a hazard of having these role-playing games is that people are too in character, quote unquote. You know, something you may have heard is like somebody being a jerk and the 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 response is, well, that's what my character would do. And I'm exhausted from that. You know, that was what it was like in middle school and high school and uh, still was haunting in college occasionally. But at that point, we lacked the the, the vocabulary to talk about it. Now from you know, Scandinavian LARPs, we've kind of taken uh, uh, safety tools like the X card, like lines and veils, and just gentle reminder, we're all adults. So if somebody is breaking the game, that could be useful. But it always kind of fills me with trepidation because I'm like, who is this person at the table? Unless we're all on the same page to be able to do that kind of thing. So that's kind of my my take on it. No, that's great. Answered the question right away. And is there anything that you or Ninth Level Games are working on that you want to talk about? Um, I think that this was a great year for Ninth Level Games. We produced more RPGs than we ever have before. And especially for Zine Quest, which is coming in March, there's going to be more stuff. The uh, the Kickstarter that just ended was um, uh, Women Are Werewolves, uh, which is a non-binary storytelling game where uh, you discuss what it means to be a non-gendered person in a binary world um, through the the lens of meta of of werewolf lore. Um, so that's coming out soon, and I'm extremely excited about it. Um, it was designed by two very, very talented people that I'm a big fan of. Um, it's not in the polymorph system, but it's a very, very exciting game. And I, fingers crossed, we're hopefully going to be expanding in different lines of polymorph. So hopefully there'll be a lot more systems and games for everyone to pick up and be like, this speaks to me. You know, I want to play it. That's so awesome. You know, thank you so much for joining me. And like, honestly, everybody who's listening, like, Thanks for joining us for this episode of Game Design Unbox, Inspiration to Publication, episode 29, Savage Sisters. Um, and Graham, for anyone trying to reach you on like social media or something, how can you be reached? Yeah, um, I, I'm on Twitter, uh, although I don't use it very much at this may be Graham. Um, I'm also on Instagram at Board Game Ambassador. Perfect. And if you're trying to find me, you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Token Gamer, and that's G-A-Y-M-E-R. And Graham, for a last question, I've started to ask people, if you were to take a single game, maybe it's your favorite game, 
and somehow you rewrote history that you were the one who designed it, what game would you put your name on? (laughs) (laughs) The game that changed the way I thought about RPGs that I realized that there were so many pieces that you could get rid of that really sent me on my path to taking out every piece and thinking about it individually and realizing that the world was so much bigger than I ever could have imagined was fiasco. Um, And so that's got to be it. The idea that it breaks down screenplay in the smartest way possible, that it's a one shot game where the dice are part of creating charged narrative images. The idea that you're taking the Coen brothers' idea of ramping up tension to make a better story. Um, Relationships on cards. Three by five cards. The best (laughs) indie role-playing tech that exists. Little three by five cards, right? Little things I love three by five cards. I adore Fiasco. Jason Morningstar um, is is a very nice man. Um, But if I could steal it from him, I would. You know what? Solid answer. I got to check it out now. Thanks so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. I hope everybody learned a lot more about RPGs. This has been another episode of Game Design Unboxed, inspiration to publication. If you'd like to hear more great gaming podcasts, check out nodirectionpodcast.com. Join us next time.